when there it's a rebrand, there's a lot more work to be done in understanding the history of the brand and what has worked for the brand in the past. When it's a new brand, it's a lot more about understanding the context where the brand will eventually live in. Hello and welcome to the Brandtune podcast, which discusses all things brand related, including the essential trademark and IP dimension. I'm your host, Shireen Smith, IP lawyer, brand manager, and author of Brandtuned, the new rules of branding, strategy, and intellectual property. Hello, my guest today is Steph Hammerlink, who is a designer located in Belgium. He focuses on food and lifestyle brands and is also the host of the podcast, Let's Talk Branding, which I found really useful when I was researching my book. So Steph, tell us a little bit more about your background and in particular, why you became a designer. Hey, yeah, um, I have this weird um, label on me. First, sometimes I call myself a strategist and sometimes a designer. And sometimes it's called a designer turned strategist. So mm-hmm. that's that's already something we could uh, pick up on. But yeah, uh, mm-hmm. living in Belgium, I've been around in a small agency for, I think, about a small decade, doing a lot of like graphic design, motion design, that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and gradually moved into more strategic um, role, trying to articulate what clients really wanted, trying to make sure the brand was defined well, and then got deeper into brand strategy. And today I'm still this like part designer, part strategist, where 50% of my work is dedicated to the actual brand design and packaging design, and the other 50% is dedicated to trying to understand um, the situation of the particular brand I'm working for and trying to make sure that we're doing and providing the right uh, design solutions. Okay, well, you often ask people what a brand is on your show. So I'll turn that around and ask you, what is a brand for you? How yeah. You- uh, oh, you, you <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> I should have seen that one coming. Um <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to ramble off the exact um, definition I have, but what I like to say is that a brand is an experiential promise that represents a business. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a couple of important points there. First off, it's experiential. So a brand needs to be experienced in some way, whether that's visual or, or auditory or a combination of all those things. I think that's important. And that can even be, almost subconsciously because that's also a big part of branding is that that part where we're not actively thinking but experiencing it and then the promise part is really about the fact that it needs to have some kind of promise inherent to the brand or to the product or service meaning it needs to have value it needs to be promising and able to uh, to per- to be purchased and then of course it needs to represent a business. Uh, I think that those are some key aspects to a brand. 
And am I right in thinking you often help people who are at the start of their businesses rather than more mature ones? I kind of do a little bit of both. I, I work with a lot of startups, so yes, but I also work with some some bigger, even global brands. Uh, but that's usually more of like a consultancy role, whereas really defining the brand, designing the brand, doing the whole range uh, is something I mostly do with smaller brand startups and, and mid-sized brands. And are they generally starting out for the first time or are they rebranding some of them? Also, uh, again, uh, doing both. I do have, I think, probably more brands starting out, but I do need to say uh, that's an important part very often is usually these are people or, or businesses that have started brands in the past. So it's not like the the entrepreneur that comes out of school for the first time and wants to start a brand. Usually those types of businesses are hard for me to work with because in terms of budget and, and, and mm-hmm. things like that, it's, it's tricky to match. But usually it's like experienced businesses mm-hmm. that want to start a new brand and want to invest from the get-go. That's usually the type of brand I work with. And do you find that people have a good understanding of what a brand is or is a lot of your work actually educating them about what a brand is? Yeah, I, I don't think people have a good understanding or at least have a common understanding of what a brand is. I think even within the industry, there's so much different takes on what a brand is. Some are more emotional, some are more practical. And I think from from a business perspective, a lot of clients aren't really aware of what brand really is. So yeah, that that's part of what I try to do. Although I don't try to get into like long, elaborate discussions about what a brand really is. I try to make sure it's clear for them what the outcome of the project will be. And for example, why we why branding is important is something I do stress about. And then I do explain, of course, what do I mean by branding? But I try to keep it a bit low on that. And because I've realized at a certain point that maybe I'm bothering them with things I like to discuss that they don't really, <laughs> that they're not interested in at that point. Right. So you say that you help them with strategy. Presumably, they come to you with a product or service and what they need is the design. So what what will you be doing in terms of strategy? With sure. Um, so uh, there's, of course, a lot of difference in terms of projects. If I'm doing like a big project for, for a global brand, it's often a lot more just focused around research and understanding. But let's take a typical product um, where... There's enough resources and somebody wants to put in a new product in the market. Usually, um, I go out and I do some competitive research. So mainly looking at who are the key players in this industry, what is happening there, what are the the brand codes or the, the distinctive assets flying around, that sort of stuff. I think that's very crucial, even if you're just getting in the market, just being distinctive straight out of gate, that's one thing. And then, of course, we look at making sure to define what the product is about, what's the value proposition, that sort of language is also something I work on, defining tone of voice. And usually, again, those things are based on research um, in the category, based on consumer research, based on understanding the the company and the culture. 
Of course, when there, it's a rebrand, there's a lot more work to be done in understanding the history of the brand and what works for the brand, what has worked for the brand in the past. When it's a new brand, it's a lot more about understanding the context where the brand will eventually live in. So those are those. This is that's a clear distinction in terms of the amount of work in the strategy phase, and then after I get into the actual or rebrand design or just designing the brand as such. Okay, so this sort of differentiation distinctiveness. How much focus do you put on differentiating or positioning, helping that client to do that? Yeah. Well, this is, of course, a, a very interesting point where I, when I started out and I learned about brand strategy and, and I read some books, it was all about differentiation. So at the beginning, I was really focused at trying to define what differentiated that brand and then eventually, of course, design that brand. Today, I'm approaching... Um, distinctiveness as part of the strategy work which is interesting because it's no longer like doing the definition of what makes this brand meaningfully different and then just getting onto the creative part no it's actually about being strategic about your creative choices and so that can mean simple things like what colors are owned by the main competitors and can we make sure that at least when we are briefing for creative or when we are designing, these are clear boundaries where we have to that we have to consider. So that's a typical thing, a typical example of mm-hmm. thinking distinctive from the get-go instead of an afterthought in design. Also, I think in differentiation, um, this whole idea of really trying to find this unique proposition that is unique to this brand. Is something I let go the moment I understand, understood some of the teachings of, of uh, Byron Sharp and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. And now I tend to focus more on trying to find a language that works for that brand, also for the team that's behind it. And of course, it needs to resonate with consumers, but that's something I think that's often overestimated. And I think making sure it's distinct is probably the more crucial element here of course one caveat when you are working with startups or people that want to put a new brand in the market there's always this case of there's always this they're very close to the reason of why they're trying to put this new thing in the market and usually the reason is they want to do it better or different so of course when that when that drive is there and when the founder or the entrepreneur or the business really wants to highlight that novelty of the product, I'm not going to say, let's not do it. I'm going to work with it. I'm going to work on that language, make sure it's there, but I'm going to keep wa- keep giving them the warning signs that even though this might be highly differentiating, it's still very important to keep in account distinctiveness. I hope that was an answer. I, I keep ranting on about these things. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I was just writing a blog recently and thinking about distinctiveness, differentiation, and the brands I choose, like, say, Hellman's mayonnaise, it's Uh because I like that taste. If I've bought another mayonnaise, I've found I haven't quite liked it as much. And so it's only recently that I've learned even the name Hellman's. I could usually just recognize. It. so that's distinctive assets you know 
Um, and I don't have a clue how they actually set out to differentiate themselves from competitors if they did. I just don't know. So, yeah, I agree that distinctiveness is really fundamentally important. So do you try to be different from competitors in that space in all the choices you make in terms of what you're going to design apart from color? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think that that is the the interesting part is really going beyond just the cliches of, okay, so we're going to have different colors. And, And that's where I really love the idea of the the brand experience which might be another buzzword but i do think it's interesting to think about the brand on all touch points and and that's probably more from my design background but i know a lot of brand designers really are hyper obsessed with the idea of having this consistent experience throughout all touch points and that can mean simple things like when you have opened up your packaging box and everything you've taken out the product, there can still be like this little sentence below everything. And that's like an example of, of a more experiential design where you really start to consider the brand experience throughout all of those things. It can be the simplest things like what kind of texture will we have for this paper or what kind of smell do we want? Or if we have cars driving around from our employees what's going to be on the back of that car is it just going to be a logo or some kind of cool tagline we work with or maybe something even more contextual and does that fit our tone of voice so it's like an endless spectrum of things you can start to work on i recently did a a project with um, some people um sonic branding uh agency i forgot their name uh what's their name again then i forgot it but yeah it was a really uh, interesting exercise because we were were, i was working on the visual identity i was also thinking about how it would move in terms of motion was for a youtube channel so a lot of moving parts but we also taught a lot about the the audio branding sonic branding whatever you want to call that and i think that's where the power comes from being a little bit more strategic and being able to step back is to make sure that all of these different sensorial elements uh, fall into place for a brand. Yeah. So how do you actually decide what codes, how many codes, for example, would you choose for a brand apart from its name? So what Mm -hmm. would you generally try to give a brand to use? Yeah. Well, there's like, two interesting approaches you have here. You can think about like the brand being a spectrum and each brand needs to have a sonic, uh, a a visual, a tonal sort of style. I think that's probably not very pragmatic. Of course, for bigger brands, you can look at the gaps and fill those in. But for smaller brands, I think it's smarter to look at where they will be um, available physically the most and work on those touch points first and understanding, for example, if it's packaging, um, if it's going to be in a physical retail environment, then maybe considering the bottle uh, shape and the color and the print finish will be probably one of the most important parts. And then thinking about, okay, so how are they going to promote this product? And that's like making sure in advertising you can maybe bring back that bottle shape in an interesting way. So I do think it's very contextual to decide what distinctive assets will work. 
even though um, there's some really good science about, for example, knowing that mascots are a very powerful tool. Uh, sonic branding is also something that's apparently very sticky. So when you do have the match of, okay, we know from science that this works and we have the opportunity here to create something, then yes, by all means, go ahead. But I, I was just saying like, there's a bit of a warning in, in here that it's not always necessary for each brand to have all, all types of distinctive assets because it's hard to manage eventually as well. Sure. And actually, le the legal dimension is much more important than people realize for mm -hmm. distinctive assets because something like color is impossible to protect <laughs> until you've become famous and well-known by a color. So a lot of brands that I see place so much accent on the color and they might have one simple stylized logo. That's all, you know, just their name yeah. in a very simple stylized logo and a color. But that's not really enough to identify the brand. Um, most brands need more than that. Sure. And and like I think what what is often underestimated is what can become a distinctive assets? Uh, I mean, we, as you, as you mentioned, there's the obvious suspects, but very often there's things that make us distinctive that we hadn't considered yet. Like, for example, I'm, I'm working on a B2B company right now. And actually the, the founders, the two founders are very prominent in, in the whole brand experience. And they, they are, of course, also distinctive assets, but then you need to start considering, well, how do we make sure that even if they evolve in terms of their physical presence, that they somehow still match with the brand. And there's some interesting like uh, venues that you can explore there. And I think that's partly why distinctive assets as a theory also needs to be, it needs to be spoken of more because right now it's mm -hmm. very much uh, very theoretical framework and there are some great examples but it, it's still a little bit underdeveloped on that way and I think for example a, a really great example uh, is the Dutch brand called Swapfeets they're like a bike renting service and they've they they so their bikes are out there in the city and they just have this blue this blue tire and that's like a really good example of a distinctive asset because recently they they gave a, a famous mm -hmm. uh, biker in sports like the blue tire and people immediately recognize that. So, I mean, it's really going beyond the cliches of, of what distinctive assets are and then making sure that it works for where your brand lives. I think that's important. So what, they've got a tire shape that is like a logo and, and they... No, it's it's just the the actual tire, the the rubber bike tire is blue, and that that's that's oh, it. But it's it's very yeah you yeah a bit like the um that red sole shoe I can't remember yeah yeah uh, Louboutin yeah 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 well that can be actually much more challenging to protect, but I I would True. think that um, smaller brands anyway need to find two or three codes apart from color and the name that they can actually own straight away and register as trademarks because that's the way you can be uniquely identified by whatever that code is. So, for example, a symbol like, I don't know, the 
um, the Nike swoosh would have been protectable as soon as they created it. So if mm-hmm. you protect that, then that can be one of your assets that only you can promote because you know competitors can't copy that. Um, yeah, I, I got to be honest with you there, Shireen. Um, I, I with a lot of businesses I work with, like mm-hmm. over the years, I, I've learned to at least make sure the brand name is is protected. So that's something I I. I push a lot of clients in like, let's make sure at least that's yeah. done. So, but in terms of, yeah, in terms of registering and protecting visual assets, it's still like a barren wasteland out there. I mean, uh, I, I just know that for a lot of clients, it's not a priority. And I agree with you that it's a very important asset you need to protect and be able to own. But it's something I personally need to look into more. Uh, I, I think I even just recently asked you the, the question on, on Twitter because it's a really interesting field and I'd love to know more about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a course because in writing my book, I realized that actually uh, marketers, even brand managers, are not being trained in anything to do with intellectual property. So they have to kind it's of side pick note. up the knowledge. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, the other day on LinkedIn, I heard about this brand where a very big brand called Mother has begun using this smaller brand's name called Other. And they're now involved in a legal dispute. But this brand called Other hadn't actually bothered to register a trademark and it's quite the norm in the branding industry for agencies not to register trademarks and yeah. to use <laughs> names that are very similar to each other. It, it, it messes with our process, that's why. And I'm, I'm being honest, like I, I, I used to ignore it as well. And then I started working with it. And then I realized, okay, there's this period where people can actually protest the trademark and you have to build it into your process otherwise it's it's like a really annoying thing for practitioners and it's a lot of times where you have this great build-up from strategy to revealing the brand name and the design and this is like a a little annoying thing but it's i mean i agree completely like right now i don't move along to any design stages unless the brand name is fully protected because i i I agree with you that it's it can run you into really big trouble if you don't. The Brandtune book is all about how to create a distinctive brand in line with the evidence-based research from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute into how brands grow. To celebrate its release on the 28th of September, we're hosting a virtual launch event with video interviews of key figures like Rory Sutherland, David Arker, and Rob Myerson. There's also a summarized audio version of the book worth £20 available for free to those who register for the book launch and buy the book the Kindle version of which will be available that day for a mere £1.99. So register at brandtune.com. The link is in the show notes. Well, off 
often actually entrepreneurs don't understand the value of IP. So they'll say, well, it doesn't matter to me. I don't, I don't worry, you know, don't worry about IP. Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone if you find a name for them and they say, well, I don't really want to bother with trademarks? Yeah, I, I usually I give the argument of, of of scale. Like, what if we're at a certain scale and people recognize your name and they link it to your service? And what if you have to give it up at that point? It's gonna be a lot more costly for you, and you're gonna lose a lot of that. And I think that's one of the the best arguments you can give because. Yeah. yeah. So, how would you decide? Um, to create a symbol for someone? I mean, what circumstances would lead you to, say you do some research in the industry and find they're all using just simple font logos, no one's really using any mascots or symbols or anything, and there's an opportunity maybe to stand out more in the branding. How would you then go about deciding what to create? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where we get into this interesting field where we cross this gap between what is strategic, meaning we set the boundaries, we set the stage, we know what we're about, that sort of stuff. We, we know what not to use. Then we get into this vague space where it's about exploring ideas, catching out, uh, trying stuff. Um, but usually there is some form of ID that comes from looking at competitors and as you mentioned for example understanding that most competitors have a very tight sans serif logo you already immediately can think okay so maybe why not go for a, maybe a handwritten logo and maybe why not have a, an interesting mark with that but it is hard to say what makes you then finally decide on the final uh, symbol because for me there's just a lot of one exploration that you need to be doing. You need to just have, try out hundreds of different ideas on artboards or sketchboards or wherever you do. And then still you need to work out some of those ideas and then you need to show them to people and see how they interact with it. And then you still need to sell it to your client as well. So there's a lot of randomness that happens in between there. And I do feel that the best way to, to go from like bad ideas to something that will work eventually is just showing it to people and listening to what they're saying. If you can open up to that, because it's not easy showing your, your like cool thing you made to people and they're starting to criticize it, but you, you have to make sure that you listen to the right kind of things. Like if they're all seeing some kind of animal in it or some kind of personality in it, then maybe it's something that might be interesting or it may be something to avoid entirely. So that's not really an answer to your question, but that's what I have. <laughs> so the Ehrenberg Mass Institute just say in, in Jenny Romaniak's book, for example, meet our owl, and they chose an owl for absolutely no reason. It was just yeah. you know, they wanted some sort of visual imagery and they picked I think they even chatted about possibly having a kangaroo or something. Yeah, that would have been more probably cliche in a way. But it's, I mean, of course, that doesn't sound very like romantic. And I think a lot of creative people want this narrative and this rationale about why they chose a certain logo. And let's not let's not be 
dishonesty your clients want it as well and i think it is important and that's why it's funny when you see these presentations internal presentations about a logo and there's this beautiful language about what it represents even if like at face value the id was just a random shape it's sometimes after the fact that you give this a story to make it easier to sell it internally and i think that's fine i mean that's just how these things work these uh, these people are in day in and out obsessed with the brand so they want something that really represents them but for me very often it's this collision of randomness and then infusing a little bit of a story and a strategy back into it that really works well and sometimes it's simple as typing the name and then looking at letter shapes and maybe seeing something interesting there and then extracting that scaling that up there's a lot of randomness and you need to accept that in the design process but the interesting thing is and i'm sorry about i'm i'm diverging here into a little bit of a different topic but it's interesting to me is when when i do the same thing in strategy there's sometimes a very interesting that happens when you experiment with things when you try out things you might discover new insights or new ideas and i i like to approach like a little bit of a hybrid model between design and strategy but now i'm really out there <laughs> i don't know i'm i'm actually wondering if distinctiveness is really all that lasts ultimately for a brand you know once they grow to a certain size it's about a product becoming successful really that's what mm-hmm. generates success for a brand and most good brands that are out there you know mars chocolate any any of them started out with a really good product and then they became well known so i'm thinking on that basis why why not just create the brand assets you know the name could be the founder's name like a lot of these big brands did start out as just being the founder's name and why not just choose you know a symbol a font um, and you know what else needs to absolutely go into it obviously you need to know that you're not cheap you're whether you're expensive or not there's certain things i can understand would would impact what a designer might design but how much does it really matter otherwise you know yeah that's i mean it's a really interesting question i think i might feel a bit different about that than than the pure, like I, I think a lot of what we learn from from Sharp and and Aaron Bergbas and and Romanyuk is eventually what we see these outcomes in market share and how how double jeopardy law and all of those things is what's left after you've basically analyzed a market share in a very abstract way, but what we don't see in those things I I think is things like for example. I like to call it a vibe. Like, for example, a brand can give you a certain vibe and at certain points in your life, you're maybe interested in a certain vibe that might be like a a yogurt that gives off a really interesting exotic vibe. Mm -hmm. These types of things aren't really to be called distinctiveness because distinctiveness is more about familiarity and recognizability in a way. But this is also something I think that is very important. And especially at the start of like a product you do, there's something about, first off, it's new. It's it's a novel thing. So people want to explore. And second, you want to communicate some kind of interestingness about it. And I think that's where the vibe, as I like to call yeah. it, is a, is a very important 
factor of how I design it. It basically gives me ideas about colors and, and, and textures and fonts and everything. Of course, keeping in account those hard lines set by the strategy and competitive colors and so on. But the vibe or the mood or whatever you want to call it, the personality is a very guiding principle when designing a brand. Okay, like, so, for example, some brands might need to look softer, some sort of more sharp. Playful, like there's a lot of different, and I think it's interesting, let's say you you have a, I don't know, a children's toy brand, you you might see a typical children's toy brand, and they have all the codes, like certain style of illustrations and fonts, and it might be actually, that's again from a more distinctive point, but it might also fit your positioning and your, your you might have a more mature way of approaching it. it, might be different and that might inspire a different type of vibe. And that eventually might communicate to, to um, a consumer that you're kind of this interesting, new, different type of thing. On the long run, of course, I think what, what is left mm. is probably what what sharp has constantly but there's a lot of randomness as you mentioned i mean at the end of the day when you're just starting out your product needs to be very good and interesting but also your your distribution and your team and there's so many other factors that are a lot more heavy at that point than probably distinctiveness because that is a long game and you need to invest in it that a lot of even amazingly distinctive startups will never make it so it's not like that is the success factor that will do it all (laughs) Mm. yeah i and also i think it's maybe important to stick to your branding that you settle on so that over the years you become known by by whatever logos whatever you start out with so you know, a lot of entrepreneurs just get bored with their branding. They decide they want a new look as if it's like a change of clothes. And it's, I don't think <laughs> there's this appreciation that these are actually assets of of the brand that you need to preserve. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel you. And interestingly enough, of course, there's as practitioners, this is how we make money doing rebrands and doing brands so often there is this conflict of interest where on the one hand you might say well is this really necessary but on the other hand you see something new and shiny you can create and i think a lot of people in branding maybe i don't think they're really dishonest about this but just Mm -hmm. ignore those feelings of maybe there's enough equity and they just because they have a hammer, they only see nails. And I was part of that, to be honest. I used to just rebrand whenever somebody asked me to, and I didn't consider it. Nowadays, I'm a lot, a lot more careful. And actually, a rebrand doesn't happen all that much. Maybe there's a refresh in there for some reasons, or it's maybe it's an assessment of what uh, like assets you have. And looking at the ones that can be more powerful or maybe killing some of them that aren't working. That's usually what I do these days is make do a proper audit of all the distinctive assets or just the entire touch point spectrum. And then try to make sure that we create something that works for what they see in the future. So, so I agree with you that very often this new shiny thing is both clients and uh, practitioners that are uh, responsible for that. What would basically be a reason for choosing a new name 
do you think? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's such a tricky one because I mean I used to think, well, yeah, it needs to have the right meaning, it needs to have the right personality, it needs to stick out from the competition, it needs to be easy to um, pronounce, it needs to be easy to be written. All of those factors uh, really are important. And nowadays, it's less about the meaning part. That's like a nice to have for me. Naming is probably more about just can people, when I tell you the name, can you at least write it down? Or can you at least Google it without being completely off? I think that is just a formal trait that a name needs to have. So on that sense, if it's a name where people are really struggling with to just reiterate or recall on, that might be a good reason to do to, to redo a name. Or when there's like a, a fusion between two companies, that might be a, name, a reason. But even then, it's probably smarter to look at just the, the best working name and pick that one and just skip the other one. So in most cases, I would say keep it. But there are some, some problematic names that you might want to change. And of course, there's also what I see with a lot of startups is they they give their, their brand a very generic name. Like let's say, um, I don't know, red, uh, red, redmarkers.com uh, or whatever because they sell red markers. Yeah, and at, that at a certain... really is uh, generic, uh, but Oatly isn't much better than that because, as the recent decision, you know, with Oatly and the Gate Gately Farm, I can't remember what it was, but yeah. essentially, if if somebody was trying to use Hellman's and say pure Hellman's, that would be a definite um, trademark infringement. But pure Oaty. <laughs> was allowed because basically it's using the generic. Yeah. And and that is, I mean, there there's probably gen- generic brand names that eventually became recognizable enough. And and I love the example of McDonald's. Like if you yeah. consider okay. McDonald's, to, <laughs> yeah, like it's Scottish and, and you don't even, I never really thought about like old McDonald's had a farm, the song, just because McDonald's was so, it was McDonald's. And and that's, I think what we need to understand is that consumers really, really don't overthink this stuff. And so like throwing away the value because you think there's some meaning uh, that's wrong is probably almost always a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. And actually looking for meaning when you're trying to create brand elements, brand names, means that you're more likely to choose something that a competitor has chosen because they're exactly. also looking for meaning. <laughs> yeah, and, and th- this is the interesting dance we have to do. Sometimes I think as brand strategists or brand designers is we have to find this internal narrative while also making sure it's actually not um, meaningful in that way. And I think if you can convince clients, because I have had instances where we have this really good understanding and I do some of the education about distinctiveness. And if you can get them on board on that philosophy and then they're with you on design and naming, it's a lot easier and people get a lot more detached from this whole thing. And I think that's that's great. I mean, if you can manage to do that, it's great for you and for your client. And that's probably also part of the reason why I talk so much about this stuff because I would like it to be more uh, accepted uh, among clients and everybody. Well, I find your 
your approach really interesting that you've really got to the bottom of what branding is all about on your podcast. So is there a brand, a famous brand, any brand that you particularly admire their approach? Yeah, let me think about, um, I know some local brands, but those probably won't ring a bell. So I'm thinking about bigger, bigger brands that um, have worked really well. I mean, to be honest, like the type of brands I'm really uh, a fan of is very often brands that are just like uh, almost a little bit on the, the the boring side of things. Like I really like Kellogg's, for example, mm-hmm. because the way that brand, of course, has a lot of history already built up. But recently, I think a couple of years ago, they did this refresh and they really blew up like just the logo. And then, of course, they have the mascots. And I think that's just really following the school of distinctiveness. So that type of brand, I really just when I'm walking in the supermarket, I like, I'm always like admiring these things because they're almost like these icons. And on a smaller scale, there's some 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 really interesting, like there's Richie, which is a local lemonade brand that I really like because they do have this vibe. It's a bit of like this nostalgic vibe. They, they have this really cool old Coca-Cola style. It, it feels like a Coca-Cola or lemonade from the 60s, 70s, but it's a very distinct brand. It's very recognizable. They're doing all they can to be physically, mentally available. You can see them in lots of different stores. Their advertising is very just emotional, just speaking to that that ID. And I think those are the types of brands that, that I very often remind, uh, like really love, just famous, distinctive in a way. So Richie, how do you, I've never heard of that. Huh? Yeah, it's a smaller brand. It's R-I-T-C-H-I-E, Richie. Okay, we'll mention that in the show notes in case people want to have a look. Yeah, you should definitely look at it. So it's a very nice brand. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed, Steph, for appearing on the podcast. It was great having you. Yeah, it was an honor to be here. Uh, it was a really interesting talk to you. And I, I definitely want to have more in-depth look at all of the IP uh, things you've been sharing. So thank you for that. Well, come on to the book launch. We're having a book launch at the end of September, and I've got various people from the branding industry talking about it, like Rory Sutherland. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll be there. Great. I want to be there. Good. <laughs> thank you very much, then. Thanks, Shereen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, you'll get value from the Brandtune book launch. Among other benefits of signing up to the book launch is that you will be invited to join the Brandtuned Ambassadors, which gives you unique perks, including a free one-to-one consultation with me on Zoom and entry into a prize draw. Be sure to sign up for the book launch at brandtuned.com.